Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the latest corporate tax developments on COVID-19. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can find me on Twitter at XBorderTax. This week, we're in full quarantine mode at my home office in St. Louis, Missouri, also known as Westminster Studios. I'm joined today from McLean, Virginia, by Mike DeFranco. Mike is a partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services practice, where he serves as the WNTS International Tax Services leader. Prior to joining PwC, Mike was a senior executive in the U.S. Treasury Department, where he served as the Deputy Associate Chief Counsel International. Hi, Doug. Thanks for uh, hosting this remotely. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. This is our first official podcast post-quarantine. And before we dive into the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, that that is, for the record, the only time I'm going to say the full name or the CARES Act. Before we dive into the corporate elements of the CARES Act, how is the working from home thing going for you? Are are you adjusted? What's been some challenges? Well, I I think the technology's worked out pretty well. I've been able to play with different camera angles. I've turned it around, used different devices. So that's all been pretty smooth. The technology we've been using uh, for work has been good, been able to have client meetings, internal meetings. So I, I think the most challenging thing is the extra jobs I've picked up. I realize I'm now in charge of janitorial services here at my office and the whole house and a whole bunch of other jobs that have come along that uh, I wasn't necessarily responsible for when we were in our office space. guy who traveled uh, pretty much 100% of the time, um, I've noticed yeah. that I'm now into the food service business. So that's one of the responsibilities that, that I've picked up since I'm, I'm home now all the time. All right, so let's dive into the, the at least the corporate tax provisions related to the CARES Act. So, you know, as soon as we think that things start to settle down a little bit and we're waiting for this last guidance that we've talked a lot about on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast, COVID-19 appears and has turned everybody's world upside down. Um, we've seen now the the Senate as well as the House have passed the the CARES Act. And maybe just start, Mike, with a a quick overview of some of the key provisions related to corporate tax and the CARES Act, and then we can spend some time kind of diving into some of the important provisions. Okay, but before I do that, I just wanted to set the table a little bit. Um, What we have is is a a giant package, $2.2 trillion um, worth of spending. they really weren't looking to raise any tax revenue with it, so there's not much of an offset in there. Um, so when you, you see a package like that, the tax provisions are taxpayer favorable provisions, which is which is great news. There were a number of other things that were on the table to get in, like um, going back and getting rid of the deletion of 958B4 and a lot of other tax stuff. That didn't make it into this bill. So we're going to talk about the four big things that really did make it into this bill. There are other tax questions that exist in the other areas as you work through the bill. Like if I have an SBA loan and I know the SBA loan is gonna be um, forgiven, am I able to take deductions? I mean, there's tax questions throughout it, but the big ones that multinationals are are really focused on are the introduction of a five-year carryback um, on NOLs. Now that is not only something for 2020, but it's something for 2019 and 18. So it actually has retroactive effect. And we'll talk about that provision. I think that is a, probably one of the biggest ones people are focused on, and we'll, we'll focus on why that is, too. The second one 
uh, deals with business interest or our 163J provisions and how they changed or loosened the rules there. Again, very favorable. And then we'll move into a little bit, I'm not gonna say a whole lot with qualified investment property, but I would note at this point, um, the neat thing about that provision to sort of highlight is that provision did come off as though it were technical correction. So it is, it is effective back to the date of enactment. And then the last one is AMT refunds, and that will tie a little bit into our NOL discussion. So those are the big four. Um, we're really going to focus on two, I think, the uh, business interest and especially the NOL provision. So one of the things that we've spent a lot of time, Mike, talking about on the cross-border tax talks is the complexity of the U.S. system post-reform and the need for modeling. So as I've started to think about these NOL provisions where taxpayers can carry back losses from 18, 19, or 20, and a number of companies weren't in losses or 18 or 19 and maybe in losses in 2020, there obviously seems to be a lot of appeal about taking losses, particularly those in a 21% corporate environment post-reform, and potentially bringing those back to a pre-reform 35% corporate rate environment and obviously looking for, for, for refunds for those years where companies have paid taxes. But there are a number of downstream implications that we've been thinking through um, with respect to, to taking those NOLs. And you know, a, a brief list that we'll get into is impacts on the section 965 toll charge, particularly as a refund, what I think go against installment payments. So you might need to elect around that. Impacts that it has on the potential beat computation and the taxable income, whether it could throw taxpayers into a beat. Potential implications on a 250 deduction, and I think some of those are more from a financial statement perspective, as well as 163J limit to the extent that you've carried losses back to a, to a year post-reform where 163J applies. But talk a little bit about you know some of those 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 overlaps and some of the challenges that we know the taxpayers are facing as they start to think about carrying back those losses. Sure. All right. So let's go back in time to 2017 when, when uh, TCJA was enacted. We had a provision in there that said we weren't going to be able to carry back our losses or NOLs anymore. Um, we also uh, weren't going to be able to take all of them. You can only take up to 80% of your, your taxable income. So you would always have some income. So you could never wipe out your, your income. And, you know, you had a lot of deals that were done since 2017. People will have that understanding. This is the way it is. The first thing I would say is if you've done acquisitions, you probably have to look at your acquisition agreements and see under, under those agreements, is there anything strange that you have to worry about with respect to the NOLs? People weren't contemplating the NOLs were going to be there for carry back, um, but now they might be. So I would just flag that um, up front, and it really doesn't tie into some of the discussion of, of rolling through, but it is something for people to be aware of. Um, the second thing you noted is is that that taking it from a 21% year to a 35% year, and the way I sort of look at that is that's like taking $100 to the grocery store and being able to get $150 worth of groceries. So it's a good deal. The other side of that you mentioned, which was Section 250. Well, Section 250, of course, reduces your your income, if it's uh, foreign-derived intangible income or FIDI, uh, to half, basically half, the, the well, 13.25, but we'll, we'll say about half. And then with guilty, you're gonna be half. With your credits, you can get to 13.25 again, but you could also be at 10 and a half. That is a situation where you, you, you know, you're 
taking and you're using that hundred dollars to get fifty dollars worth of groceries. So when you're knocking out your ability to have income in those baskets, it's it's detrimental. When you're able to take it back, it's positive. Uh, the other complication is, as you said, 965. What's the implication on, on Section 965, which was generally a life event for most for most taxpayers, uh, large taxpayers, that is. And then even more complicated is really the effect on your foreign tax credits. What does it mean if you had foreign tax credits in years uh, where, you, you know, in the prior years are going to go back to, and if you're going to knock out the income there, are you going to knock out your foreign source income, knock out your ability to use credits? Are those credits going to expire in the interim period? Are you going to sort of lose time on the clock with those credits? Um, are there implications along the way that you really have to consider? So that really feeds into your point about modeling. This is not uncomplicated. In fact, it's very complicated. And I think the decisions that companies are having to make right now, they're having to make under a lot of pressure. They're having to make um, you're hearing throughout corporate America, throughout, it's not just corporate America, you're hearing in, in every household in America, we need cash, we need liquidity. Um, and and so when you're sitting in a tax department and you're asked, you know, where are the sources of cash? You can't go offshore and pull cash up like taxpayers did at the financial crisis when the government gave them 2008-91 and said, look, you can loan it up temporarily, we'll give you a valve. That valve is kind of worthless now because there's not a lot of trapped cash. So one of the places for cash is to take your taxable income in prior years and reduce it uh, and get a refund from the government. That's exactly what this, this provision is meant to do. Um, problem is that is not without costs sometimes. And you need to understand what those costs are. And they need to be able to be understood in a, in a very numeric way so that that cost of capital can be compared with the other capital that a company may be able to get or other liquidity a company may be able to get at through other programs. So, um, hate to say everything post-TCJA is quantitative, um, you know, it seems to be a continuing story, but I think uh, making the decision here, you absolutely have to do uh, a fair amount of calculation and a fair amount of modeling. So Mike, let's unpack a few of those things. Like let's start with the, the section 250 deduction because this is one of the ones that, that we ran into immediately and particularly contemplating some of the financial statement implications. And so as most of our listeners know at this point, the section 250 deduction is the deduction that US taxpayers can take for their foreign derived tangible income or their guilty income to effectively get those items of income from a 21% down to a 10 and a half. And you had mentioned the 13.125 because of the 80% foreign tax credit. But generally speaking, US companies can effectively deduct 50% of their foreign derived intangible income or they're guilty. But those taxpayers are only allowed that deduction to the extent that they have taxable income. So one of the things that I found very interesting is that if we carry a loss back from let's say 2020 back to 19 or back to 18, so to a post-reform environment, then we might actually wipe out the taxable income for one of those years. If we wipe out the taxable income for that year, then the section 250 deduction goes away. And that was your point about the $100 of groceries only being able to buy, or $100 being able to buy $50 worth of groceries, is that, that you might lose the section 250 deduction from carrying that loss back. And that can have some financial statement implications as well. And so it's just the first example of really being able to model 
the, the implications of the NOL to understand what the consequences are on your Section 250 deduction. You, you nailed that perfectly. And you're right on. And it's usually one of the first things people go to because Section 250 is on their mind. And they know there's a cost if they're going to take it back. Um, now, that cost may not be present if you're, you're going back to a pre-TCJA year, but then you got to realize one of the ways you're going to get into a pre-TCJA year is, is to do something today. There's nothing you can do about 2020. 2020 is going to play out however 2020 plays out. But a lot of taxpayers are looking at using elections that are still, you can't really do a lot of planning for 2019 right now, but you could, you could do, for example, accelerated deductions. Um, when you file your return, you can take all the capital uh, expenditures that were made and put them into your accelerated deduction, take full expensing. Maybe that's enough to tip you over. And then maybe you're using 2019. Well, now you've done something to 2019 that affects the, the, the FIDI and guilty considerations. So you have those. And if you really need cash, that might be exactly what you do because 2020 is a ways, a ways off um, in filing that return. So... That's where a lot of taxpayers are focused. What can they do with 2019? 2018, what could you do with 2018? Could you go back and amend 2018? Is it even possible to go back and amend 2018 and make the accelerated um, depreciation or the, the full expensing election? Um, those considerations, if you do and it pushes you into a loss, then you are having these costs and guilty input. Yeah, so I think your point is a good one. So. The first is, is like if you have a loss in 2020 and you carry it back to 18 or 19, you're going to need to think about the 250 deduction. But your point is, is that taxpayers, when they're filing their 2019 returns or when they're going back to look at their 18 returns, should think about counting methods and similar type of elections that they may have made that would determine whether they're in a taxable income position or not. And so query whether some taxpayers would be interested in accelerating deductions but your point is, is that the acceleration of deduction, just like a loss carryback, could have a cost if it is if you are effectively foregoing a 250 deduction. And I think that may be more a book cost than actual cash tax cost, but things that companies will need to consider as they're making that analysis. The other yes. thing that I wanted to, the other thing that I wanted to mention was or talk a little bit about is the the section 965 toll charge because. The act has a specific inclusion as it allows taxpayers to not carry the NOLs back to the year that they had their 965 inclusion. And I believe that the reason for that is because to the extent that you would carry back a, a loss to the year that you had your 965 inclusion and you were entitled to a rebate in those years, that that rebate would then need to be applied to your 965 installment obligations. And therefore, the taxpayers wouldn't actually get the cash back. So that I believe that the way Congress intended to fix that was to allow companies to effectively bring those NOLs not in the year of the 965, but you can effectively go around that year. Do, do I have that right? And you can provide any additional insight on, on the yeah, you, you, you have it right. Um, 965 and, and refunds around 965 have already been problematic. They've been problematic since we had it. Uh, we had taxpayers who, even if they went in and, and paid all of it, um, realized maybe they didn't owe it as much as they owed or something. And they were running into trouble getting the refunds. Um, again, the, the theory was 
that if you're on installment, not everybody's on installment, um, 964, or excuse me, 965H and I, but um, most probably are. And so there was a lot of complication. I think there's a lot of administrative hurdles around it. And I think uh, they just didn't want to test the waters there uh, too much. So they decided to have this workaround. And, and that's why that's there. That doesn't mean, however, when you're going back um, and, and looking at, I mean, because we're, we're looking at this through a US lens, but uh, the, the reality is there's, there's going to be other issues going around the globe that may feed into 965. Uh, we may have uh, jurisdictions who are hungry for revenue and we may have 905 issues coming up or 904 issues coming up. What's your foreign tax credit? There just a lot more complication could be happening down the road. Um, so I wouldn't say 965 is completely put aside. Um, people may have to revisit 965 at some point, but that's this, this bill was meant to sort of work around that. I think that will be the subject of another podcast is everybody wants to keep putting this 965 behind them. But you're absolutely right to the extent that there are foreign tax redeterminations. There may be the the, the need to go back and, and revisit some of those calculations and, and particularly as it relates to the foreign tax credit. The other thing about the NOL provisions and, and the carryback is some of the implications that it could have with those provisions that rely on either modified or adjusted taxable income taxable income-based provisions. So a couple of those that, that come to mind are the BEAT, um, 163J, we think about section 199 and R&D as well. Um, but carrying back NOLs to, to, to prior years, particularly post-reform years, or to your point of making accounting method or similar type of adjustments to reduce the taxable income, could, for example, reduce a taxpayer's modified taxable income such that it could throw them into the base erosion and anti-abuse tax. And so, again, it's really important to, to model if you're carrying back those NOLs, obviously you wouldn't want to put yourself in a loss or put yourself in a position where you've carried back loss to 2018 or 2019, and then you throw yourselves in, in, in the beat. Or similarly, if you had taken a benefit for your 163J and all of a sudden you've changed that taxable income and you've changed that limitation, there are just a number of different factors that those NOL loss or the NOL carryback could change. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and there's, there's another fair issue out there too, and, and never to use the financial crisis as a comparison to what we're going through right now, but there are some lessons we learned from it. And that was getting refunds. Now th this, this bill was meant to put people in a better cash position. So uh, one of the ways they're gonna do that is they're gonna look at their 2019 return, which they probably haven't filed yet. And they might, taxpayers may decide to make some accounting method changes, um, make some, make the full, full expensing election, throw themselves into a loss, and then take that loss and carry it back to say, 2000 and let's let's just pick a year 2016 for example all right so you go back to 2016 and you reduce your taxable income and if you are bringing back enough to reduce your taxable income such that you're going to get more than a five million dollar refund you've now taken yourself and you put yourself into the special category of refunds that require joint committee approval when you get joint committee approval on a greater than five million dollar refund 
you have to go through a series of procedures. The IRS has to examine. There's a whole protocol you have to follow. The IRS has to follow. The committee follows. And it is, to say the least, cumbersome. It can slow down the payment. Um, I know it can take a long time to get a refund when you're in that situation. And when you are desperate for cash, often you don't have that time, or I would suggest no one has that time. In 2008, the government did, in the financial crisis, look at that process, and they did give it an expedited rev prop. Now, the government is already, and by the government, I mean the Treasury Department, has already exercised some authority here. One, they've moved the filing dates. There was some noise early on about putting that in legislation. They didn't need to do that. They could do that themselves. But the other thing uh, the government it can do is they can expedite the refund process, and they can put procedures in place that protect them but serve the goal of getting the cash out quickly. If they take the lesson of 2008, my hope is that we're going to get a rev proc here pretty quickly. I'm not going to wait on regs for any of this stuff. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to see regs. This is this is going to be notice, rev procs, rev rules. Um, it's going to be expedient guidance. But if there's a place they're going to need some guidance, it's getting those refunds back and getting them back in an expedited way. I'd expect there to be some, we're probably not going to spend a whole lot of time on the AMT refund, but again, looking for ways to expedite that. That is where the government, I would assume, will be focused on getting some guidance out. Yeah, so I think we've also heard, Mike, that it's the, the way the government is going to try to deal with these refunds is on a first-come, first-served basis, which makes sense. So it tells us that taxpayers are encouraged to do this analysis and file those returns as quickly as possible. And we know from prior experiences that that can be a very big effort filing, I believe it's form 1139, and getting the appropriate materials together, obviously, to, to complete those filings. So time is of the essence. And I think the challenge, at least that we're seeing with, with clients and taxpayers, is understanding what the collateral implications are to what we discussed, 965, to the Section 250 deduction, to 199, to um, B, to, to 163J, and then doing that modeling and then making the, the determination about whether to file. And I think the other thing, just from a practical perspective, is everybody's working from, from home, including the IRS. So, you know, query how they plan to process and just administer those, you know, those, those returns and those filings. Uh, any insight on, on just on the practical implications of that from your prior experiences in government? Not that you ever were quarantined while you were there. I was never never quarantined, but we did have a flood at 11-11 that did cause us, that's 11-11 Constitution Avenue, that did cause us to go remote, but that was just the national office of chief counsel and then some people from the commissioner's office, the commissioner and a few others. Um, that did throw us off our game. It did put us in a situation where, you know, at the time the IRS computers were not wireless enabled because of taxpayer information, so you had to plug in, you had to go through a whole procedure, you had to, it was really hard to get online. So we did everything by BlackBerry. The problem with that is only SES, so Senior Executive Service, and a few GS-15, so high-level um, uh, career people had the BlackBerries. Now, I, I think that they're more prevalent. Maybe they're not BlackBerries anymore, <laughs> but you know, the smartphone technology has made its way in the government just as everywhere else. But it's not as, as common as you might expect. And I know that, that those technology issues are out there for them. The other thing is the way the the um, service centers are set up is you've got a lot of people in 
large areas, in some cases working shoulder to shoulder, and they've had to come offline. And if they're not working from home, they have to go in and clean everything and then reposition everybody with a, an appropriate social distance between them. They've probably got new procedures in place about how people are interacting in the office if they're in the office. And I would lay on top of all that, not only do they have to carry out everything we need done here on, on this side for refunds and, and dealing with some of the corporate matters, but the IRS has got to do a whole lot with individual tax filing season. Uh, my understanding is they're not getting a lot of their seasonal people back, and it's not because they don't want them back. I think it's just because a lot of people just aren't able to come back right now. And then <clears throat> the other big issue is the, the IRS um, was, was handed the huge job of handing out all of the, the checks to the American public of 1200 each. So I think when they begin to prioritize where are they going to put their resources, I think getting those checks out to people is number one, uh, no question about that. And then it's going to be a question of, all right, then where do they put the resources? Refunds, I, I would say, has got to be up there. Um, and then first come, first serve, getting those refunds in, getting a rep proc out for an expedited process when you tip over that $5 million mark uh, will be extremely important. And you know, I wish I could say money's going to flow tomorrow uh, out, out of the IRS, but I, I don't think it will. Uh, maybe those checks, hopefully those checks will be coming very soon. But as far as refunds, I don't think it'll be uh, quick, but hopefully a lot quicker than it would be if they don't make some changes with that rent rock. And I don't know anything that's a rent rock coming. I just, I'm guessing one's coming because one came in 2008. Yeah, a Herculean tax and obviously employers, you know, corporate employers eager to get their hands on that cash. And I think modeling is certainly the first step getting those returns completed and then filing and trying to get as, as close to the front of the line as possible are, are the, the top priorities for taxpayers. So let's turn to 163J. So 163J is our interest expense limitation provision that came as part of tax reform where companies are generally limited to 30% of EBITDA. And what the CARES Act did is, as you mentioned, it changed the provision or changed the the 30% limitation to a 50% limitation for 2019 and 2020. So effectively increasing the amount of interest expense that's deductible for US corporate taxpayers. And then there was also a change um, in, the, in the law that allows companies to be able to use their 2019 numbers for the 2020 return on particular certainty for those taxpayers that presumably are trying to model out where they're gonna be for their 2020 year. What are some of the things, Mike, that companies should consider as they're thinking about changing their 163J position, particularly in 2019 as you know, companies are scrambling or starting to prepare, whatever the case might be, for those returns? What are some of the things taxpayers should be mindful of as they're thinking about moving from the 30% to the 50% limit? Well, it, it, it all sort of ties together. One, you got to think about your NOL and, and what you're doing in prior years or what you may be doing with your carryback because that is going to affect the uh, adjusted taxable income numbers. Um, it is, it is I think, fantastic news for 2020 that you can use your 2019 number and then, uh, you know, a huge benefit to go from 30% to 50%. The thing to remember about the, the business interest limitation rules or one, the new 163J provisions is it applies to um, all businesses, once you cross a certain income threshold or size threshold, and that doesn't matter whether they're in partnership form or in corporate form. And so 
many, it always applied to inbound investment in the U.S., so, so non-U.S. companies, but now it is a broad provision that cuts across uh, all organizations and anyone who was affected by it, it could be very important because, you know, as you're working through your calculations, you may have some more room to take some more deductions, but then there, there actually is a, a bit of a, a question about the ordering of the NOL, uh, the ordering of, of provisions like 163J, I think we sort of get to the point of if you don't have uh, taxable income in 2020, we've got a huge gift here. Um, maybe I shouldn't call it a gift. We've got something that really helps us. We can go back to that 2019 year and use that to use to calculate what our interest limitation is and then put that into the calculation for your 2020 loss. Yeah, and, and your 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 first point, Mike, is is spot on. You you have to run all of the the traps on the other taxable income specific provisions to figure out if this 163J additional deduction makes sense. Again, it's kind of like with the NOL. It's like, well, who wouldn't want more deductions? Well, given the complexity that we have post tax reform, for example, with the beat, you know, it's possible that a company would would take the one additional 163J deduction, the additional interest expense in 2019 reduce their modified taxable income and end up in a base erosion and abuse tax position. So obviously you're not gonna to wanna to, to do that if that's the case. And so modeling, again, the downstream consequences of these additional deductions is, is really important. I guess there are two other provisions that, that you had mentioned sure. briefly, the changes to the AMT credit acceleration and the qualified improvement property, kind of outside the typical cross-border space, but any other words of wisdom or things to mention on on, the, on those two provisions, Mike? Not an expert in either, and I think I misspoke and call it qualified uh, investment property, you know, but yeah, qualified improvement property. I think the interesting thing with qualified improvement property is here we are, you know, several years out of, of tax reform and we've got a technical correction. So they are back to the original effective date. Um, that was my read of that provision. There were other technical corrections that were, were bantered around. Uh, there is some noise about a possible fourth bill coming through. That bill might be a little more tax focused. Um, if it is, it is possible that some other provisions, technical correction provisions could show up. It does show Congress has an appetite to be a few years out um, and push technical corrections through or what they view as technical corrections. Um, the other thing, uh, when you look at AMT, I mean, it's really just the, the, the speed of being able to get cash uh, it's critical for many, many taxpayers, just like taking the NOL back, getting the refunds, um, getting the process in place. I'd be watching very closely to see how quickly the government can put together expedited processes and put the guidance out there as to what that expedited process needs to be. The government has a concern of fraud on refunds, and, and, it's, and it's not an unwarranted concern. They've, they've had a history of people filing bogus returns and things for, for refunds and then disappearing. But when you, you get into the big numbers, um, you know, you can't have a cumbersome process that's, that takes, you know, because of the slowdown um, that companies are waiting a year plus uh, for the refund money. It's a year plus maybe too late for many of them. They're really looking for that bridge. They're really looking for that liquidity right now. 
And so I know the government um, will, will, I think, take a lesson from the financial crisis and come up with some expedited processes. So beyond the CARES Act, Mike, in, in our last couple minutes here, what are some of the other things that companies should be focused on? You mentioned liquidity is, is really important, getting cash back. Um, I've, I've heard from a number of taxpayers and clients with respect to just a big sucking noise from U.S. MNCs, particularly trying to get what cash exists in the system back to the U.S. for a variety of different, you know, supportive type activities. But you know, what are some things that companies should be focusing on besides obviously the modeling and trying to take advantage of the provisions in the CARES Act? But what are some other things that companies should be considering in this COVID-19, you know, catastrophic economic environment? Well, I, I think you, you're right. The number one issue is cash and liquidity. I hear it at the beginning of every meeting uh, with a client. Um, so that is first and foremost on their minds right now. But going beyond that, um, I think a lot of, of taxpayers can, can look at um, really this as an opportunity. I always look for the bright side in things sometimes. Um, to look at your structure, um, to look for moves. The, I guess the benefit is values are down right now. So you can probably move some things uh, around or dispose of, of some things and you probably won't have the, the tax hit you, you might have had before. Um, there are other implications looking ahead to, you know, if you, you make some of these decisions and you gen up the loss in, in 2020, yes, you should probably be carrying it back because there is a huge benefit to take it back to a 35% year. But let's say you can't, um, then you've got to live with some of the consequences rolling forward. And we talked how those problems with guilty and fitty and implicate, and you might not get that that great benefit with 163J. And so you may get a whole lot of interest expense that gets hung up. I mean, there's just a ripple effect that could carry through uh, to the to the future years as, as we move out of this crisis. Yeah, and I, I'm hearing the same thing, Mike, with the discussions that that I'm that I'm having. And so, you know, one of the things that has also been interesting about the current economic environment is that the U.S. dollar is relatively strong compared to a number of other currencies. And so, just potentially bringing back distributions of previously taxed E and P, PTAP, and potentially triggering foreign exchange losses, or if there are other assets where there are either, you know significant economic losses, built-in losses that you make reference to, or where we have foreign exchange losses, whether it's under section 988, 987, or as I mentioned, 986, if it's PTAP, you know, looking and scrubbing the, the attributes and those, those assets within the group, they create an opportunity to trigger losses, which you're absolutely right. If we can move back into a 35% corporate environment could have significant cash flow advantages. And then obviously thinking through the non-US implications, particularly where withholding taxes and some of those other taxes may be some cost where we can't get a foreign tax credit, for example, if if uh, if we're not actually paying any guilty, if we're in a loss, then those are obviously significant costs as well that, that companies should keep an eye on as they're looking to try to bring cash back to the US. Mike, will you any other last or, or words of wisdom for taxpayers as they're absorbing the CARES Act, as we're waiting for the, the potential fourth, uh, the fourth act, if you will, of the of, of taxpayer relief from COVID-19? 
Uh, well, no, just keep keep your eyes on on what Treasury might be doing with some guidance around this act. Again, don't look for regs, but look for, for faster forms of guidance. I'll expect we'll see some. Um, there are a, a lot of questions we didn't get into um, that are going to be questions that they're going to be asking their tax professional that I think are important, a lot of details. Um, the other thing I, you know, I, I started with, um, there is an implication with, with having this, this loss carry back um, that wasn't there in some of the prior M&A deals. Well, suddenly it's there again. I mean, when you're looking at the M&A deals, as you, you said, um, being a little opportunistic of maybe this is the time for us to make some strategic moves, um, consolidate within our, our industry a little bit. You, you, you do have a twist here with a, with a carryback um, that probably has been put aside by a lot of uh, deal teams. To, to think about now 382 polices trafficking losses so it's not it's not you're going after others losses to to use them but um it is a complication that or or a benefit uh that people would need to think through great advice mike and of course if there are any notices that come out you will we'll talk about them here on cross-border tax talks and we're obviously anxiously awaiting a number of red packages, which you can also find here on the Cross-Border Tax Talks. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks Mike DeFranzo, PwC's WNTS ITS leader, for joining me on this episode. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's US International Tax Services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.